Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 this morning, final book in the Bible, and uh, we're making our way through on Sunday morning and come now to chapter 12. Verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that uh, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went out to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us and the living word that it is. And we want it to have a living work by your living Holy Spirit in our lives today. We ask that you would continue to thoroughly furnish us under every good work and plan you have for our lives. And we pray that you would use our time in your word to further conform us into the image of your Son. We want our doing to be conformed. We want our thinking to be conformed. We want the attitudes that we carry around in life to be conformed. And so we pray that you would do that by your spirit through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we continue in this lengthy uh, parenthetical passage that constitutes chapters 10 through 14 in the Revelation. And here in chapters 12 and 13, we're introduced to seven uh, different and prominent personages whose place in the Revelation and also in the seven-year tribulation period is important for us to understand. In chapter 12, it introduces us to five of the seven, to Israel, to her child, to Satan, to Michael the archangel, and then to a remnant of Israel, chapter 13, uh, speaks to us 
of the final two of the seven, the Antichrist and the false prophet. This morning we'll limit ourselves to just the first three of the five in uh, chapter 12, Israel, her child, and Satan. We want to, uh, this section is introduced with the words in verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven. The sign was given uh, here and, and God communicates what he's communicating by virtue of a sign because he wants to communicate something important. So often when we read in the scriptures, we'll, so often the, the words sign and wonders are uh, communicated in the same sentence or the same breath. And they do have an association, but they are different from one another. A wonder is very simply something that God does supernaturally that causes us to stop and wonder. It's a means by which he gains our attention. When he gives us a sign, a sign is always intended to lead us someplace. It's always intended to communicate a message uh, to us. And so God is wanting to communicate something very important to us here in this chapter. And the sign is described in the remainder of the chapter. By referring to what occurs here in chapter 12, uh, by referring to it as a sign, it's being made clear to us before we head into it that God is using figurative language uh, here. And so the events are, are real, they're going to occur on the earth, the personages are real, but they're being described in figurative language. It also helps us to understand that God takes, and when he's moving into clearly figurative language in the book of Revelation, he introduces it as such, so that we don't fall prey to the temptation of viewing the entire book as being figurative language, or something that we can just attach our own ideas or interpretations uh, to it. And, and so when, unless he describes it as being figurative to us, then we are to take it literally. In other words, we're not to spiritualize uh, the, the 12 seal judgments, or the, the seven seal judgments, or the trumpet judgments, or the bowl judgments. They are literally what it is that is going to uh, happen. The first personage that is described here is a woman in verses 1 and 2, and she's uh, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now that's, that's a nice outfit right there to head out in the public with. That's really, really something. So the description presents this woman to us with in incredible glory and, with in, and possessing incredible uh, beauty. Now, Roman Catholicism teaches that this is a reference to uh, the Virgin uh, Mary. There are large portions of Protestantism uh, that teaches that this woman refers to the church. One of the problems with, with it, endeavoring to identify her as the Virgin Mary is that nothing about the rest of the chapter uh, matches or can match uh, the life uh, of the Virgin uh, Mary. One of the problems with identifying her as the church, and there are a lot of problems with that, 
is that this woman gives birth to, spoiler, uh, spoiler alert, to Jesus, and you can't have the church giving birth to Jesus. Jesus gives birth to the church. To, he, he provides us with a spiritual birth. And so she, since she can't be either of those, who in the world does she represent? And again, as we've made our habit uh, through the book of Revelation, because it's what it, we're intended to do to understand the book, we make a friend of the Old Testament in trying to understand the imagery in the book of Revelation. So we turn to the Old Testament to try and understand who this woman is. And plainly, she represents Israel. She represents the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 37, this exact imagery is used to describe the Jewish patriarch uh, Jacob, his wife Rachel, and their 12 sons who, uh, whose descendants would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this imagery is used in a dream that God gave to one of those sons uh, by the name of, of Joseph. God gave Joseph a couple of dreams, and in his youth, he shared them and didn't make them popular around the dinner table with his brother and then also with his parents. He got his brothers together and he told them that he had dreamed a dream, and uh, he said, please hear this dream that I've dreamed. He said, there we were in this dream, and we were binding up sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf uh, arose, it stood upright, and indeed your sheaves then stood all around, and they bowed down to my sheaf. Well, the brothers understood this immediately, and they complained and said to him, uh, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This dream spoke about the fact that Joseph would come to a place of great prominence and that ultimately the brothers would bow down before him as would happen in Egypt. The use of these sheaves as imagery for it uh, is very, very appropriate because a famine came upon Egypt. Joseph by that time is the second most powerful person in Egypt and it is his responsibility to gather together enough wheat to then bring Egypt and the world around it through a seven-year uh, famine. He was given a second dream <clears throat> and he told his brothers and he said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Uh, they let the father know, they let Jacob know about this dream. And his father rebuked him. He understood the imagery completely. And he said, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down to the, uh, to the earth, bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. It is a picture of the Jewish people, a picture of the nation of Israel. Additionally, we're told in verse 2 that she is with child and that she is in labor and in pain and she's about to give birth. This speaks of Israel's kind of pre-Messianic eagerness to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, the Jews desired and longed for 
the birth of the Messiah into their history. And so uh, their desire for him to come into human history through them. And so she endured a very, very long pregnancy and a very, very long labor uh, spanning all the way from the time of Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way until the time of the Virgin Mary. Uh, You might get tired of being pregnant uh, for that long. The second personage is a dragon in verses 3 and 4. He's clearly identified for us as the devil in verse 9. And he is described to us figuratively, specifically uh, being described in terms of characteristics that he would uh, reveal uh, about himself in, in, this, uh, in this chapter. And so he's described as being great and fiery red in verse 3, red <clears throat> without a doubt speaking of his uh, murderous char- uh, character, speaking of his eagerness Uh, to shed blood. He is uh, described as having, in verse 3, seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. Concerning the ten horns, biblically, a horn speaks of power. Uh, If you have an oxen or an animal and it has uh, two horns, the full strength of the animal is expressed uh, and concentrated in those horns. It speaks of the concentrated power uh, of, of the animal. And so from Daniel chapter 7, we learn that the ten horns speak of ten kings or rulers who are going to make a final world-ruling empire at the end of the age prior to God establishing his kingdom at the second coming of Jesus Christ, that these ten kings or rulers will come out of the old Roman uh, empire and they will turn over their power to the devil in the form of the Antichrist and they will dominate the world during the entire period of the, the great tribulation. And so Satan, by the time we come to chapter 12, he's descri- he is described in a way that it makes clear to us that all of that has already happened. He has already accomplished these things uh, uh, that are recorded in chapter 12 uh, by, uh, by the time of these events. Then the seven heads, since seven is the number of completeness in in the Bible, the head is a symbol of wisdom. Uh, It seems to indicate that the Antichrist, uh, through the Antichrist, Satan is going to deceive the world with a a supernatural, very charismatic, very, very demonic uh, wisdom. The seven crowns, uh, crowns speak of authority, they speak of power, and uh, because of the removal of Uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world through the church at the time of the rapture of the church, uh, Satan is easily going to uh, be able to consolidate all of the power and all of the authority of the world during the Great Tribulation, and he will exercise all of that power and authority through his instrument, the Antichrist. You notice in verse 4, very interestingly, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And so this strongly uh, intimates that when Jesus, I mean, when Satan fell from his uh, first estate, when he uh, rebelled against the authority of God, uh, Satan was one of a handful of very elite uh, angelic beings in, in heaven and created by God. He, in his pride, rebelled against God 
And then not only did he rebel, but then he led among the angelic realm, he led a a rebellion against uh, God. And he convinced one-third of the angelic host to join him in his rebellion against God. And these are known as fallen angels. We also know them as demons uh, today. And this passage provides us with the clearest explanation for the existence of the demonic realm uh, in, in the Bible. Imagine his ability to deceive. He is in heaven, and uh, these angels, as well as him, but these angels have been in the presence of God, God Almighty himself, uh, in that, that scene, and somehow, uh, despite the, the awe and the majesty and the glory of what they're in the middle of, he's able to convince them that rebelling against this God is, is a good idea. It speaks uh, in a scary way for people in the world uh, during the Great Tribulation period of his, his ability to convince people and persuade people uh, against all logic and all evidence. And yet he, he accomplishes that. So a third of the angel, the angels... Uh, followed Satan in his rebellion. It is good to remember that two-thirds of the angels did stay faithful. Uh, So often our eyes are only on uh, the one-third of the population or of a group that uh, is doing bad things, and we forget that twice as many people are are doing good. You notice in verse 4 that he stood before the woman who was about to deliver her child. Uh, with the intent of devouring the child, destroying, killing the child uh, at the moment of the child's birth. This occurred when that <clears throat> paranoid uh, madman of a king by the name of Herod at the, uh, at the time of, of Jesus' birth, obviously, as we see here, under demonic influence, he tried to kill Jesus as soon as he was born. You remember the wise men came out of the east at the time of Jesus' birth. They came desiring to find the king of the Jews. They had been told uh, to come. A star had guided them that far. They wanted to worship the king of the Jews and bring gifts to him. They made their way to the city of Jerusalem, of course. And as they make their way to the city of Jerusalem, they ask the Jewish religious leaders, Who, uh, where can we find uh, the king of the Jews, where is he to be born? And they said, well, Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So he, they make their way then to Bethlehem to ultimately worship uh, Jesus. And, and word of this comes to Herod about this new king of the Jews that these magi came seeking. And he thinks to himself, I'm the king of the Jews. And again, he's a very paranoid, very violent historical figure. And so he determines that he's going to nip this at the bud. And he told the Magi before they left, listen, when you find the king of the Jews in Bethlehem, come back, tell me his name, because I want to go worship him as well. God informed the Magi, do not return to Herod and make that known to him. Go home by a different means. And when Herod realizes what has happened... And he's now still threatened by the birth of this uh, king of the Jews. He orders that every male child under the age of two uh, be slaughtered in order to uh, ensure in his mind uh, the death 
of, of Jesus, his endeavor to execute him. And all of this is recorded in Matthew chapter 2. Now, the third personage is a male child in verse 5. And so uh, the woman, Israel, uh, by means of her bloodlines, uh, in, including the Virgin Mary, uh, gave birth to a male child, uh, Messiah, that is Jesus. And so uh, that this refers to Jesus is made very, very clear to us from the description that is given of, of him here, of this child, a very strong uh, uh, alliance with the messianic psalm of Psalm 2, that he will ultimately rule the world with a rod of iron. And Psalm 2 uh, reveals the Messiah. When he would come to be, he would be both a king and he would be the son of God, a description historically that is unique to uh, Jesus. And then uh, additionally, we're told later in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, as uh, Jesus is uh, at his second coming, that the these, this same characteristic is ascribed to him. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Now out of his mouth, speaking of Jesus, goes forth a sharp sword that uh, with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Clearly a reference. It is birth to Jesus and it is second coming. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And then the child is described as being caught up to God and his throne, uh, referring to Jesus' uh, ascension into heaven to the right hand of God the Father following his birth and his life and his ministry and his death and his burial uh, and, and his resurrection. The woman in verse 6 is then represented as fleeing for her life uh, into the wilderness. And when it talks about the wilderness here, it's talking about the Judean wilderness to the east of the city of Jerusalem. It's a very, very barren uh, arid part uh, of Israel. It's very beautiful in its own way, but it is, uh, it is a wilderness. And so it's out east of Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea, uh, extends on into the country of, uh, of, uh, of Jordan. And so she will flee in that direction and that she ends up fleeing through the Judean wilderness and ultimately ends up seeking, uh, finding refuge from God in Jordan uh, is indicated in Isaiah's prophecy, God's prophesying through him of this very time, in man, future time in man's uh, history. In Isaiah chapter 16, verse 4, God cries out to Moab, which refers to Jordan, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at hand. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And so she probably finds refuge uh, during the tribulation period somewhere in Jordan. Apparently, this group of Jews, because not all of them do, but apparently this group of Jews flees out into the wilderness and then on toward Jordan in heeding the instruction of Jesus for them to do so as he declared in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 
uh, 24, verse 15, speaking to the Jews who will be there at that time. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation that occurs at the halfway mark of the tribulation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. He realizes that Jews are now with this disappointment, more than disappointment, with the Antichrist. They will realize that he's the Messiah. They will look to his teaching now. Where do we go from here? What do we do now? And, uh, and so Jesus says, whoever reads that now, let him understand. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back uh, to get his clothes and so forth. Run for your lives. And so they realize at that point they've been deceived by the Antichrist and uh, Perhaps thou realize that Jesus is their promised Messiah given the fact that they heed his instruction to flee in exactly the direction that he tells them to do so. Now, at this time during the tribulation, Satan, again, by means of the Antichrist, is going to unleash an uh, absolutely murderous uh, persecution uh, against the Jewish people. Uh, he is going to endeavor at this point uh, following the abomination of desolation, their rejection of him at that point, he is going to endeavor to annihilate them. And she's going to flee into the wilderness, we're told, where God, having, of course, already known that all of this is going to happen, will then protect and provide for her for the last uh, half of the seven-year tribulation period, 1,260 uh, days. Of course, God's provision for in the wilderness for a large number of people is not unprecedented or even difficult for God in the Bible. You might remember that the children of Israel wandered for 40 years uh, in the wilderness because of their unbelief in extending their journey because of unbelief from the land of Egypt to the land uh, of Canaan. And so this will be effortless for uh, the, the Lord to do uh, for these, uh, the, the Jews that then uh, flee there. Now, tragically, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah indicates that this persecution of the Jewish people uh, in the land of Israel uh, by Satan through the Antichrist, that two-thirds uh, of the Jews are going to perish as a part of that persecution and one-third uh, is going to uh, find uh, protection in, in fleeing to the place that has been prepared for them, as Jesus calls on them to do. Again, Zechariah, the reference for those of you who take notes, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. And in verses 7 and 12, we have an enlargement of Satan's persecution against the Jewish people at that, that same time. We'll look to study uh, verses uh, 7 through 12, God willing, next week. In verse 13, the devil will make the Jewish people the single great focus in the world of his persecution. And, and knowing that he only has now 1,260 days in order to his, uh, accomplish his annihilation of the Jews uh, before Jesus returns at his second coming, he gets right down to work. But you notice in verse 14 
that the woman is going to be given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the place God has prepared for her where God will then protect her and care for her against the devil's uh, presence and persecution for three and a half uh, years. Now exactly what these two wings are uh, of the, the great eagle are, we don't know. People talk about airplanes in an airlift or something like that. We aren't told. But clearly it represents here the, a supernatural strength that God gives them in their fleeing, a supernatural help from God to escape. Eagle's wings are known for their strength. You might remember that when the children of Israel uh, initially began their exodus out of the land of Egypt, of course the Pharaoh sent the Egyptian army in order to uh, annihilate them as well and to, and, uh, and to bring them back, uh, either bring them back or annihilate them in, in their exodus. And God swallowed up the Egyptian army uh, in the Red Sea. After that great event of God defending his people uh, from destruction by uh, this Gentile power in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 19, verses 3 through 5, God declared to the children of Israel, and Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He referred to that destruction of the Egyptian army as eagles' wings in his protection of the Jewish people. So what form it will take, we're not told, but we shouldn't limit it to something uh, non-miraculous. And then in verse 15, Satan is going to then spew water out of his mouth like a flood after uh, the woman, and, uh, and the intent will be that he will be able to carry her away uh, by that flood. It could be a literal flood, that uh, he unleashes. Satan has power over nature to some limited degree. You might remember that when Moses went in to uh, endeavor to secure the children of Israel, uh, their release from Pharaoh in Egypt, that when Moses came in and, and performed miracles before Pharaoh, that Pharaoh's magicians were able to follow those and duplicate them to a point. And after a point, they couldn't do that. So he does appear to have some limited control over, over nature. I, I'm inclined to believe that a, a literal, literal army is being spoken of here in the imagery of a great flood being sent out by the Antichrist to destroy the Jews. It isn't uh, unusual for the Bible to describe a Gentile army, especially one that is coming forth to destroy the Jews, to describe it as a flood. Um, For instance, in Psalm 124, uh, the, the psalmist writes, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, the Jews speaking, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us. Uh, then the, their, the waters, speaking of the, their military, 
then the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. And so whatever this is, we know there's going to be an attempt uh, to destroy her. The attack is going to be completely thwarted uh, and, and rendered ineffective by supernatural means. In verse 16, uh, the earth uh, helps the woman by opening up its mouth, swallowing up this demonic flood uh, that's been sent under Satan's orders. And so uh, this certainly brings to mind uh, God's use of uh, bringing uh, the, to an end the rebellion of Korah and others with him against the authority of Moses in the Old Testament where God opened up the earth and swallowed up uh, everyone that was associated with, uh, with that uh, rebellion. Um, if God did that today, every church would have uh, one church split. And then everybody would learn their lesson and say, that's too risky to engage in. Now, when, uh, when all of this happens and that, that attempt to throw, bring an army forward and, and all of that is thwarted and every attempt that Satan makes here to destroy this group of Jews is thwarted. He is enraged, we're told in verse 17, and he leaves off the attack against that group of Jews and he redirects his wrath against uh, all other Jews and against any other believer in Jesus anywhere that he can find them. Now, all of this raises the important questions uh, of uh, like, what is the devil's fixation with the Jews? Why is he so fixated on the Jews? Another question, good question would be, why are the Jews such objects of his venom and his uh, malevolence in particular in, in all of the world? Have, have you ever wondered why have the Jews been so persecuted historically more than any other people by far no group of people have been persecuted in this world in human history even remotely close to the way the Jews have been persecuted in their history going all the way back to Haman in the Old Testament, and then into more recent times of several hundred years ago, the French endeavoring to destroy them, and then Spain in the Spanish Inquisition under the Roman Catholic Church, they were driven out of Geneva, driven out of Poland, driven out of Ukraine, persecuted in Russia, uh, attempt to destroy them by Nazi Germany, to say nothing of the continued persecution against the Jews today uh, by so many Muslims in the world today. And the persecution goes on. It isn't even, uh, it isn't just solely historical. And you see the sheer number of Jews that are leaving Europe right now because it is no longer safe for them to be Jews in the capital cities of Europe because of the persecution meted out against them for simply being Jews. There are entire cities being built 
in uh, Jerusalem and in, in Israel and being enlarged to accommodate the Jews in Europe who see the handwriting on the wall for them and they are now making their way to Israel knowing it is the only place we have any hope of uh, finding some kind of relief from this historical persecution that we can seem to never rid ourselves uh, of. And so you look at the persecution that they have faced and you ask yourself, why not the Chileans? Why not the Brazilians? Why not the Japanese? Uh, why not the Swedes? Why not the Puerto Ricans? Why is it the Jews? Why is it always the Jews? And clearly, they are the especial target of something supernatural and evil. And the short answer of why the devil is so fixated on the destruction of the Jews is found in the Holy Spirit's description of the woman of Israel in verse 13 in those seven words, who gave birth to the male child. Referring to the Messiah, referring to Jesus, the Savior of the world. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where following the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that God spoke to Satan of the price that he would pay for his part uh, in that fall by declaring to Satan face to face, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he will bruise your head, speaking of the Messiah, and you shall bruise his heel. And with this prophecy, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God began to now paint a prophetic portrait of the Messiah who was to come, a Savior that he would send into human history, and, and who would be uniquely qualified to overwhelm uh, every single consequence of the fall in the Garden uh, of Eden, including bringing a death blow to Satan's authority in human history. And yes, that Satan would one day bruise Messiah's heel, that is, he would accomplish Messiah's crucifixion, but that Messiah's crucifixion would then be the very thing that would ultimately deal a lethal blow to Satan and his authority. And this was spoken directly to Satan by God. And so Satan has known from Genesis chapter 3 uh, that this Messiah, when he is born into human history through the Jewish people, that he will be Satan's undoing. Now, then later in the Old Testament, God began to build upon that prophetic picture of the coming Messiah by declaring that Messiah would come through the bloodline of Abraham, who is the father of the Jews. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God spoke to Abram, Abraham ultimately and said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of many things, but speaking ultimately and supremely of the Messiah that would be born of Abraham's bloodline. As the Apostle Paul, um, as as, as God spoke to Abraham and made that promise to him, and when he did, God narrowed all of the bloodlines in the world down to one, Abraham's. He eliminated all of the other bloodlines in the world. He narrowed it down to the Jewish bloodline. That would be the bloodline that he would bring Messiah into human history through. The Apostle Paul's uh, confirmed that in his letter to the churches in Galatia, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as to one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And then likewise, the promise that God made to Abraham and his bloodline, that promise was then passed verbally from God to his son Isaac who then passed the same very uh, blessing and promise to his son Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob constitute the three great patriarchs of of the Jewish uh, people. And then God prophesied that Messiah would be born of the bloodline of Jacob's son uh, Judah from among the 12 uh, sons, 12 tribes of, of Israel. Later, God promised that King David, to King David, that the Messiah would be born through uh, his very Jewish bloodline, and still later that he would be born of a virgin, and later still that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. And so all of that time, Satan was waiting for that Messiah to be born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem with a very specific bloodline going back to Abraham, a Jewish bloodline. And then as we've seen, he pounced on the opportunity to kill Jesus right on the other side of the womb in in his attempt to do so through King Herod. And this child, he had been told by God himself, would not only be the savior of the world, again, from all of the consequences of the fall, but he would be the one who would be the devil's undoing, who would ultimately crush Satan's authority in a way that he would never, ever recover from. And because God has chosen the Jewish people through whom to again, in the words of verse 13, give birth to the male child, to Messiah, to the Savior of the world, Satan has had and will always have a special hatred for the Jews. A hatred that he has for them that is greater than his hatred for all other people and a hatred that he will continue to express all the way into the tribulation period. And anywhere you see anti-Semitism in the world, whether you see it in a nation, whether you see it in a city, whether you see it in a religion, or whether you see it in an individual, or whether we see it in our own hearts, we are witnessing always something that is demonic. I'm not talking about an individual Jewish person 
doing me wrong and then not liking him for the wrong that he did to me. What I'm talking about is a prejudice or a hostility uh, toward the Jews as a whole for simply being Jewish. When a, if a Jewish person does something individually to me, something that is, is wrong, and then I dislike that individual person, that's something that has a basis in a physical reality. This hatred of the Jews, uh, the way that it has been expressed through, through human history, it doesn't have a foundation in reality. It has a a physical reality, it is a, a, has a spiritual foundation, a demonic foundation. Now tragically, in large part because of their spiritual pride and because of their self-righteousness and because in the words of, of Jesus him, himself, they're uh, making the word of God of no effect through their man-made traditions the Jewish people failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah at his first coming. And thus they failed to partake of, of the blessings and the salvation that he came to offer. And supremely, the seven-year tribulation period, it accomplishes many things. But the single most important supreme thing that the seven-year tribulation is all about is it is intended to humble the Jewish people and open their eyes up to Jesus as their Messiah. And unfortunately, in their stubbornness related to Jesus, it is going to take every bit of the seal and the bowl and the trumpet judgments to accomplish this. It is for this reason that in the Old Testament, the tribulation is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. It is supremely about the Jews. In Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel the prophet described all 70 of the 77s, uh, including the final one, the final uh, seven, the seven-year tribulation period. He describes all of it including the tribulation period, is having to do supremely with the Jewish people. And I don't think anybody can understand the book of Revelation or end times and end time prophecies in the Bible without properly understanding the place of Israel and the Jewish people in the entire program and in the, the entire, entire series of sequences. Yes, they failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah at his first coming. And God knew they would do that. But he loves them enough to not let that stand as the final thing concerning them. And, and, and that he would, uh, his, here you have him, God has used the Jewish people to bring Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, into human history and in light of, of what he has done through them for mankind, he just is not going to abandon them in their unbelief concerning Jesus. And the Great Tribulation is the description of what it will take on his part to get them to see 
the truth about the Messiah that God has provided to them. So what is our attitude toward the Jewish people to be as Christians? Well, one attitude we should have toward them is gratitude. And I don't mean to make those rhyme. To stop and remember as Christians that God has provided the world with the two greatest things in human history through the Jews. Number one, the Word of God, the Bible. And number two, He has provided the world with our Savior and with our Messiah. What we owe to the Jews like we owe no other group of people in the world uh, cannot be put into words. We should also have compassion on them as we consider how long and how terrible the persecution is that they have endured as a result of being God's chosen people. And to know anything about Jewish history and the price that they have paid for God's choice of them to bring the Scriptures into human history, to bring the Savior of the world into human history, is to understand, I think, in some small measure, as much as a Gentile can understand it. I think it's encapsulated in that beautiful scene in Fiddler on the Roof, uh, where Tevye, he offers this very short but powerful prayer uh, to God under the, uh, in, in terms of uh, the, the weight of being God's chosen people in this world and the people through whom these blessings have come into human history. And so his face is turned up toward God and he says, I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? And to have a Jew say that in that movie as a communication, a small but powerful communication of how hard it has been for them to be the chosen people to do these things in human history really communicates so much. We should also view them with hope. The Apostle Paul, Jewish himself, put it best in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, he said, I say then, has God cast away his people, speaking of the Jews? Has God done with them? He answers in two words, certainly not. Later in that same chapter, he said, and I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Is there no, uh, uh, no hope for the Jewish people in, in uh, their uh, rejection of Christ? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness. And so by and large, they have chosen a path to recognizing Jesus as their Messiah that is going to be far harder than anything that God intended to be their path in the form of the seven-year tribulation period. But ultimately, they get there. And when they get there, 
it will be a cause for celebration. When you look at the grace of God as He extends it here to the Jewish people, and you look at how much He loves them, and yet He is willing to take them through the unspeakable hardship of the seven-year tribulation period in order for them to finally accept Jesus as their Messiah. And if you go over to Israel today, uh, and, I, I, and here we're talking about not one or two out of a thousand Jews coming to recognize Him as the Messiah. It is talking about the Jewish people as a whole recognizing He was and He is my Messiah. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you realize how hard, how hard the Jews have worked, so many of them, in never ever having to come into contact with that truth, uh, how much separation they have put, including the interpretation of their scriptures and all, to distance themselves in an, in an, in an endeavor to permanently distance themselves from the possibility that Jesus could be their Christ. And, and yet, here God says, I'm going to take you through this because I know it will take this for that light to go on. And He looks at them as He looks at any human being and says, what is at stake here supremely? most importantly, is not the difficulty you'll face in life, this side of death, but to die without Christ, to die without the recognition of Jesus as their Messiah, to go into a Christless eternity, that makes the tribulation look like a picnic at the beach. So he is willing to ratchet things up to this level in order that they might be saved and the fullness of His blessings and promises can be upon them as Messianic believers, as Christians. This isn't unusual in, in our lives either. I think you, get, you have some people that become Christians top of, the, top of the world experience. They accomplish the great thing they want to accomplish in business. They become a millionaire by whatever age there is, or they get this or that or whatever, and this is the thing that's going to finally satisfy me. And they get to that pinnacle in life, and, and they're, they're absolutely on the top of the mountain, and then it doesn't satisfy, and they're so disappointed in how unfulfilling it is, then they turn to God. And then there's another group of people that it takes so much humbling. We are so stubborn and so stiff-necked and have built our lives uh, in, in every way that we can to never come into contact with Jesus or the truth of uh, knowing, uh, believing Him as, as, uh, as my Savior or uh, becoming born again and all of these layers. And what does God do? He comes in and He does whatever He has to do to get our attention. And many of you, that was your testimony, where you got to that place. 
And you realize, no, God, it took all of that for me not to end up in a Christless eternity, and I thank you for that. How many of us pray for our children and our grandchildren who are prodigals? And we pray and we say, Lord, do everything you have to to bring them to you. And if you've been at this for a while, you don't say, do everything you have to except this and this and this. You say, do everything you have to to bring them to this place where they will see your offer in Jesus Christ and then surrender to Him and be born again. And God is so faithful and it's an act of his grace of his grace and his mercy most of us not me but most of us he should have given up on you way before you got saved but he didn't and it's his grace and his love manifest even in hardship when he knows that that's what it's going to take for us to become one of his sons and one of his daughters. And it's a wonderful thing that he is willing to do that. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to be born again, to experience a spiritual birth by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. That's how it happens, and if that's never happened in your life, You need to make sure that that happens. And you're in charge of that. We would love to pray with you related to that. And so come forward after the service. If you need prayer, any of us here today, you need prayer for anything in your life. These same men and women women would love to pray for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, so often it isn't until the hardship is over in our lives that we look back and see what you were doing, including in bringing us to you, and how you know us so well and what it will take to wake us up, to humble ourselves, to be willing to turn to you, willing to be saved your way and through your Savior. And we thank you that you never, ever give up. And that you know us so well, you know just what circumstances that will take. And Lord, how we look at those things is just in our flesh, and at the time, is the worst thing that's happening to us in life. And then once we come to know you, we realize what expressions of grace and love and what blessings they were from your throne. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your love for us and for the whole world. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.